1: It's the BritFlix.com podcast. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Tamsin Raffin. Hello, Tamsin. Hello. And you're a screenwriter and would you say former development exec? Or are you still one?
2: anymore, so definitely, probably would.
1: Okay, okay, so you're a screenwriter now.
2: Yeah, although I always seem to be on hand when anybody's finished a script. My uh, inbox is permanently filled with would you like to read my script? If that's what I've been dreaming of. (laughs) Oh, please. I hope there's 94 new scripts from people I don't even like very much in my inbox. Um, But, you know, no, my career, allegedly, is writer.
1: Okay, cool. Now, your your featured debut as a writer is albatross yeah
2: that's really that's it yes
1: <laughs> okay so do you want to do you want to for and that came out in 2011 is that right
2: Yep, that's right
1: do you want to give us for those that haven't seen it and that are listening do you want to give us a brief synopsis to what albatross is
2: Well, basically, I mean, it's quite an interesting story, not the film, uh, but how it even happened, was um, I was working in development when I wrote it, and I was worried about how I gave notes, because apparently I was quite aggressive and mean. And I thought, if I wrote a script um, and then gave it to a few people and they gave me notes, I would learn how it was to take criticism. And so, basically, I thought of all my favourite types of films and films that I'd enjoyed, you know, even from childhood, like Wish You Were Here... Squid and the whale, the door and the floor, anything that has that rhyming couplet. Um, I and I watched those kinds of things, and I thought, well, this is what I like. I like naughty schoolgirls. Uh, I like uh, I like seaside towns, and like things where the person is a writer or a failed writer. I like things about ambition. And so, really, as an exercise, it was that was what it was. So I just put all of those things together, took a load of incidents from my real life, and some not, or really? like that were influenced by things that happened. And I thought, well, that's that's how you that's how the best way to do it. And in fact I've never written anything better. I mean I'm not saying the film's a work of great genius, but I am saying as a writer, it came out of me as if it had to had to come out. And it does rely quite a lot on stuff that really happened. And I think that really helps that write about what you know thing was just a massive asset. But also It just was, uh, it it just felt so right. And suddenly I was like, this is it. This is my vocation. It's like, I suppose, I've never played the flute, but imagine if I suddenly picked it up and was like man on a piccolo in it. Like, you (laughs) just didn't know. I just had a go and suddenly it felt so right. So uh, that was how it sort of all began. It began so I could take criticism.
1: And what did you learn about taking criticism then through writing the screenplay?
2: Now I'm really hopeless at it. <laughs> so this is this is not a great story for any, you know, perspective screenwriter because it's like the luckiest story in the world. Um, but I gave it to some people, obviously, because I had good context. Because I'd been in development for about 15 years at the time. Yeah. And three weeks after I'd written it, it sold to Mark Samuelson and the Isle of Man Film Commission. And one year later, it was shooting on the Isle of Man, fully cast. And so, and I still had a full time job. So I genuinely had the luckiest break in the world, and I've not had one since.
1: (laughs) So so for a 12-month window, you had the hat cocked to the side of the head quite a lot?
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) I was cocky. My hat was cocky. (laughs) (laughs) But but also, like, I worked so hard at the job because I... Be head of development at a company called Big Talk, who made Shaun of the Dead and Hot Bars and Attack the Dock and things like that. Mm. And so it was a very intensive job. And some of our financing at the time, because so we were doing Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which was in the US. So mm. it was coming from America. So we'd start early to deal with the English people, but when we'd work late to deal with the what was going on with the Americans. So it wasn't like it was an easy job even. So I went to a set of my own film for one day, Right. And I had to book a half day's holiday just to go to the read through, but I had to come back after an hour and a half. So it wasn't like I was like reveling in the experience of like I'm getting my film made. It genuinely felt like it was happening to someone else.
1: It sounds. <laughs> it sounds like you got all you got all the success without being able to sort of sit into it and, and like watch it happen. That's you it. kind of had so much else going on.
2: Oh, genuinely couldn't do anything and like. Didn't actually get, couldn't take the time off because I was producing a film called Sightseers, uh, the Ben Wheatley film, uh, that I'd worked for, for five years at this point. Um, when the when the film came out, and I needed time off to do press and publicity, and I couldn't take it because mm. <laughs> so I couldn't do it. So I did do some, I think. But um, genuinely, the experience of it feels a little wasted because I'd love to do that now. God, that would fill my day brilliantly. <laughs>
1: It was a fantastic film, by the way, Sightseers. It was one of my, Oh, that, one... isn't
2: that a good film. I mean, all credit to the person that um, created it. Me? Well, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, it just, it really was. I think Ben Wheatley actually elevated that to a to a state so I never imagined when we started working on that before before he was around.
1: <laughs> no, i remember, I did the uh, the round table stuff with um, with Alice and. Um...
2: Alison's, they're just amazing I love yeah yeah
1: yeah those yeah. two and it's a great story that about how that, that you know that went from stage to TV to film and and, I know, and you know, know. And they,
2: those two hadn't really written a feature before, and I think we did twenty eight drafts of the um, just of the treatment because they were just experimenting so they'd go away and do things like. I'd say, they'd say, oh, we're reading a book about Fred and Rose West, which you can see why they would, because it was sort of like that. But it would send them in a direction that was completely at odds from the draft before. And so a whole new, like, 15 page outline would come in that bore no resemblance to the one that I'd been reading two weeks before. So it was such a learning process in terms of how that film got made in a way that. Was properly indie. I mean, what an experience! It was like working. Sorry, I've gone off track a little it's bit. Right,
1: it's a British movie, so we're we're on we're yeah, on we're on message for the podcast.
2: Yeah, but it was just like actually from the sort of the giving of notes that happens in a lot of sectors of the industry to that very free improvisational uh, two artists really at the helm. For many years before the director even got, you know, came on board or got chosen. It was just such a fact. Fe- we sent them on a recce up to, um, I can't remember when they were at the Pennines, I think, somewhere, and just sent them with a camera. And I found this cameraman they didn't know, and we just put them in tents up in the Pennines. <laughs> They apparently stayed in character for the whole trip of this recce, and when he came back, he recorded like a Blair Witch thing of saying, "If my if I die, my body is buried." <laughs> <laughs> because he said they never came out of character, so he wasn't entirely sure they wouldn't kill him.
1: <laughs> brilliant! Brilliant. I once interviewed Count Arthur Strong in character; that was quite surreal. Um, oh God! <laughs> but just just as a, as a little as a little sort of full stop on that, as a geek fact, I have got a signed post movie poster for sightseers that's still haven't got framed. Uh, yes, I got it from the corner. Well, what was the corner house in Manchester?
2: Yeah. oh, I've got, I've got some very nice souvenirs, obviously, because I was very in on it. So I oh yeah, you, yeah,
1: yeah. I, my my friend went to see it, and he and he knew I loved the movie, so he kind of he claimed it for me as a prize, and uh, that's
2: I... really good. I um, I um I actually had to pay for though and I bought one for me and one for my old assistant from Big Talk old hmm. assistant, not my older
1: sister. Yes. Uh,
2: from Big Talk Ruth. Um they, what are they called? Last exit to nowhere. Oh they yeah. did have you seen the t shirt they've done for it? No. It's really cool. So I bought myself one and I bought one for Ruth. it like got the outline of the caravan and blood spatters across it. But I uh,
1: I did uh, I did hosted Q and A Q&A on Saturday for um Battle Mountain, which is a documentary about the cyclist Graham Aubrey, yeah. and my payment was a cap, a T-shirt, and a lovely record.
2: Oh, see, so so, I take that over payment most of the time. <laughs> like, often, a, often, like a custard cream and a cup of lukewarm coffee. <laughs>
0: <I> <laughs> now
1: let's let's get back. Now let's get back on track. Now I think we I think we've digressed a little. Um, yeah. Now Calma. you 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 basically you, your intro basically told us. That you decided to write a script, you sold a script, it got made into a film, and yeah. now you're, you're no longer in development, which was the job you were doing. Yeah. That, that kind of stopped you enjoying all the magic, even though I think there's yeah. still a lot of magic to have been enjoyed in that period. I, I oh, think.
2: the the um, when it went up to Edinburgh, and my parents and all my friends came up, and yeah. no one had seen it yet. And there had been a screening for the press, I think. The Day that I was up on going up on the train, and yeah. just read, start to read those first sort of internet reviews and things. It's just one of the most exciting and terrifying things you can ever do. But like, they're such a generous audience at a film festival, they have of not, of yeah. to see it in advance and paid you know, because they're quite expensive to see it if they're going to rubbish you. So you genuinely believe that that's the reaction. <laughs> and they did a QA, of course, with the audience, and everybody was like. So generous and kind of Jessica Brown Finley was there and Sebastian Cock had flown over. And it was like such a lovely warmth to the whole thing that I thought that I was literally in the middle of, you know, oh, God, I'm going to be on the cover of screen tomorrow, undoubtedly.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Real reviews come, came out a few months later, and that might have been one of the worst days in my life. Really? The, oh, God. It is the biggest anticlimax uh, for a star. I suppose even if you've got five stars, it's just bits of paper so you know there's nothing you can do with it you just have to sit see if anyone sees it but um, some of the press was so evil Mm. about it I just didn't want to leave the house and it happened to be released on my actual birthday so the disappointment was just added and compounded and then I started having friends that went to see it just to support me and saying oh okay saw that what do you mean (laughs) Like, what about well done or I really
0: enjoyed
2: so I mean it's it's agonizingly painful i think i just one of the things that upset me the most was um, in the edit Somehow the editor and the director came to the conclusion that they were going to flip two set pieces. Now, you're a writer, you know what that means. Yeah. You've built a set piece and it builds up to something, and then there's a sort of little plateau of like some other story thing going on, and then perhaps another set piece builds to somewhere else. Yeah. If you flip them, it doesn't make sense. So, of course, he then, I think the director must have done it, had written this linking line for a child to say that was utterly awful for me, as who didn't write it. And then, of course, all the good things like variety and screen just said, for, for a former development person, it's very strange she chose to eschew her uh, proper story structure.
1: Oh, oh my word. This...
2: Oh, and, of course, it's not me, but that's filmmaking. It's a collaborative effort, but I got the blame. And I was just mortified, going, yes, someone did eschew story structure, but it wasn't me.
1: I must admit, it's, it's one of the funniest things that I've sort of... The last seven or eight years, sort of, I've made that conscious decision to sort of make efforts to be a screenwriter. And then you begin to see that most of the time, the press will blame a bad film on the screenwriter and praise a good film on a director and every other bugger that's in it but the screenwriter. It's, Have you it's,
2: that? It's absolutely true. It's, absolutely a hundred percent true, and the only people that ever get away with it is that auteur theory, and I mean auteur as in Wes Anderson. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. The writer-directors.
2: I, yeah, right. Yeah, should I just say writer-directors?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but he, he's a, he's but the or, like, he's the director of what he authors, isn't he? So he and, and presumably he sits in the edit suite. So I imagine he's there. Three okay, six, yeah. Him and Paul Thomas Do Anderson.
2: Yeah, allowing his own stuff to be trampled all over. I found it a massive learning curve being on that side of the table and if if it wasn't that I got to learn how to take uh, criticism on my script, it was very, very much about not being in control of the project because previously I was very involved with casting and you know, who I chose all the directors if it was my project. I went out to them and said, you know, like, that was my, but suddenly no one gives a damn what my opinion on directors really are. I mean, I did. They did. I did meet some of them. Them, but if that director said I'd love to I'd put a lesbian strand in, then you, he got it.
1: Okay, okay.
2: If, I don't know if you've seen the film, but he didn't get it. No, no,
1: no, no. no, no I was going to say that. So I just No, I've seen the film. Yes. Um, yeah. And congratulations. <laughs> I should add there, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. Sure. No. So, so you. I mean, it's inter- It's interesting that given that you were in development as a job, the development yeah. of a film you scripted, you weren't involved with. How? I mean, I guess most of that was down to the fact that you were arguably too busy to start with to get yourself involved. No,
2: it's not. No, really? Okay, go on. It it very much was separate. Being a writer was not... So that's why I I chose my husband's name to write under so that I was Tamsin Raffan whenever I wrote and that, that allowed me to be a whole different person. And in fact nobody really knew. So once the film had been shot, not when it had been made, but when it was sort of all in development, I got a hell of a lot of meetings off the back of the script. Mm. And... and then I obviously knew a lot of these people, a ton of them, like the people from working title and the people from DNA and all of those companies. Yeah. They were the people that I, that I saw at every screening and every open day and, it, you know, all of those sorts of things. So I'd go and sit at reception and it never occurred to me that they hadn't been told that I was the same person. So they'd come <laughs> out and they'd sit and chat to me and I'd go, and in the end they'd go, so what are you doing here then? And I'd go, I'm here to meet you. And they go, no, 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 I'm meeting. And then I'd realise it was a different name. But I hadn't actually notified them. And they go, for the hell, I've been sat here for 40 minutes talking to you. <laughs> so, so it was all kind of peculiar. But my company that I worked for didn't particularly want a development person as a writer or a writer as a development person. Okay. Because... Other writers don't really want you to be in competition with them. And I totally understand that because it's such a competitive world. And they're thinking, she's going to steal my ideas. Or, you know, you don't mm. know what they're thinking. I made that up. But do you know what I mean? They're yeah, yeah, yeah. very much. And I totally got that. And I think it was such a wise idea to keep them separate. So they wouldn't have seen the script. They wouldn't have. It wasn't an issue. And it got sent out to other companies. And it really was just to see whether I was going to be a writer or not effectively not not to get it made that just didn't happen and sadly almost because it did get made my expectations are so willfully ridiculous now and my mum still says to me when's your next book coming out and I go it was a film remember <laughs> but she thinks now in fact my whole family do not understand why I'm so unsuccessful now and I keep going that situation was so rare and ridiculous it's very hard to explain that that's not going to just happen again
1: See at least at least you've got that reference point. I I have the conversations along the lines of So what's happening with the film stuff? It's just become what the film stuff now, the conversation.
2: Of mine don't even ask anyone, They're too embarrassed because they can see my sad little face go. Oh, but there's sort of a, there's a group of us, and a lot of these people were in the um, in that writers group I did. But really, really, really good friends, and we've all just had one film made, and we don't understand why you don't get your second one, because none of our films were entirely panned. I don't think. Mm. There's someone who deserved to be but I won't mention his name
1: let's let's talk about you as a writer then because when before we started the podcast when we were doing a bit of preamble yeah you, you were talking about how you've you you haven't got a formulaic approach to how you write or how you go about creating a <laughs> screenplay so let's look looking at Albert an example to start with which may or may not be the right way to do this because I'm just I'm interested in the fact that you, you talked about the, you you were writing about what you know. As being yeah. a place to sort of feel feel most expert, I suppose. But there is, yeah. there is that there is that other challenge, though, when you do write about what is essentially drawing on real life, is it's that classic thing of that that thing that happened to you on your holiday in Torquay that was hilarious for the whole family is not hilarious for the world. <laughs> So, yeah. so how did you, how, how was you as a writer then? Take what you were doing as like personal experience, but then turn that into something which is dramatic. How did you go about that challenge?
2: Because here's the thing, is I'm not actually a very good inventor. I don't write anything. I'm not actually a good writer. In the old days, I would have been hopeless, I think. Uh, what I'm really good at is that I'm a good thief. So if we were having a conversation and then i turn around and have a conversation with someone else five minutes later, I could potentially take a little piece of your story and a bit of somebody else's and I, that would make my story. Okay. It's a little embellishment and a little few lies so my worry when I wrote the film was people would start recognising themselves <laughs> and I started genuinely panicking because the idea was just to get something out not to like start like slandering people which would be horrendous. Right. Um, but in fact what happens is it changes so much and you don't realise that you are just taking your experience but your way of writing it is not is not offensive or like like, various people say gosh that character was dreadful wasn't she and I'd be going you you it's all you (laughs) you've said all of those things and I just stole them um but I very much and even now when I sometimes try and do things that are a little different or you know like it will be a teen thing or it'll be a you know a Christmas movie or whatever is I can only do it if I've either seen it, heard it, or read it in a way and thought that's really inspirational or influential on me. That's my way of saying I didn't steal.
1: <laughs> but then we're, we're all magpies in a way, aren't we? You, I would you,
0: think so. Because
1: everything's drawing on life, and if it's yeah. something you've heard read, I mean, if you read a fictional novel, you're, you're, you're kind of seeing how a story's made in a different way, aren't you?
2: Things, yeah, and you'll say, you know, you'll look at someone, and you'll go, oh, how very Holden Caulfield of you. And you're not thinking, oh, you've just stolen your life from Captain Arise. It's just a reference. Mm-hmm. But it's happened to me a lot. And so I what I do is I always have a notebook, always, and I, um, and I have loads of them, and then I never can find them. But I write down, if someone says something funny or amusing, even out of context, I can look at it and go, that's a really funny line. And often what will happen is it will spark a whole scene, because that line goes oh my god imagine if he was on a boat when he said that the difference that would make it really does help me to do that but um when i wrote albatross i didn't do a plan like a treatment at all i just started writing and that's why it was this magical experience because it just slotted in i have to say the script is quite different from the actual finished film in the end because there were a lot of notes in fact there was a whole extra character that had his own strand which influenced the entire plot which who went because the director didn't like that okay. but but it very, very much flowed. And the thing I had to learn along the way, which is really hard, is that it was never going to happen again. And that ultimately, that having a sort of tr- a treatment where you've written it down, perhaps without dialogue or with suggestions of dialogue, is the easiest way you're going to get to the end. Mm. Because 105 pages never seem so long as when you have got stuck at like 35 and realize you're, you're not even a third of the way through. Or well, you are just a third of the way through. But so you do. I do think, and my friend Jeremy Drysdale, who I believe you've
1: interviewed, he has been a guest on this podcast. Yes.
2: Yeah. He very much says to me, whatever I'm writing, you're doing treatment. Like he's almost on my back, like he's my dad. I mean, he's old enough to be my dad, but he's not. But he, um, he very much says, are you doing the treatment? Are you doing it properly? Because he knows that the pitfall of I can't continue because I haven't planted it properly.
1: Well he he's he's but he's almost like dogmatic about it. The way he talked yes. about it he, he spends weeks yep. that I would spend screenwriting, to be honest with you, outlining a, it, and then he spends about ten days then writing it all out as a screenplay. And he says he rarely ends up rewriting because he's dotted all his I's and crossed all his T's.
2: Of course. I know, and he's absolutely brilliant. He's mathematical about it, and like, he'll come out with a 158-page screenplay because his treatment might be a bit long, but at least he's got it all down there, and now it's his t- to cut away at. Mm. I
0: think
2: mean, it's such a good idea. The laboriousness of the task in hand of doing what he does isn't particularly in my character, and I do do it if someone's paying me to do it, <laughs> and that's the funny thing. If someone's paying me to do it, yeah, you can have whatever you want. You can have it written in feathers. But if I'm doing it for myself, I keep trying to make shortcuts, which ultimately is probably not the way to do it. But sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. So but, who knows?
1: But I think that's to do with like your own your own sort of personal muse. Sometimes there are times when writing an outline feels very natural because you've kind of got your head in a place to write a story. And then there are yeah. other times where you kind of you're not coming up with anything. And then the minute you like your example there about if you put it on a boat, the minute you say character X and character Y are sat yeah. on a football terrace arguing about the burnt yeah. toast. Suddenly you're in a world, aren't you? Which, in an outline, you don't get in that world, do you?
2: Yeah, and I find a lot of my things that actually happen to take place over a, a, a drink. You, and it's the laziest thing in the world, is to put a drink in someone's hand and sit and still. So just actually relocating them to find where that, that sentence could be said. <laughs> it's it's <hard laughs> that you're done, really, isn't it? So it's that. So the, the, so the
1: first draft is what a glass of wine, and then by the fourth draft, you're going, "Well, they were playing golf." <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Like, the first draft has no plot whatsoever. It's just like an Alan Bennett talking heads. <laughs> I do very much like dialogue, and di- I mean, I. I, I I lie my way around it by saying it's character, which it genuinely probably is. Yeah. But like um, I know other people, and Jeremy for one, very potty. And so the outline of plottiness is we re- is probably really helpful because the, the the story depends on them having knowing where it you know where the, the replicant is going to be on the spaceship. I was going to say yeah,
1: day. but also I guess you're, you're, would you say you're you're writing drama as a because like Jeremy's very much writing. Genre, isn't he? He's definitely doing thrillers. I Absolutely. think.
2: Well, technically, I'm supposed to be a comedy writer. I know there was no comedy left in Albatross, but it did start out as a comedy, uh, like not a hilarious comedy, but like comedy drama. I, I, think... I would,
1: I, would I, mean, God, I mean, as someone as a viewer of it and someone that doesn't own it, there's a lot, there's a lot of humour in there, and it's... it's it, the obvious references you use, like the Wish You Were Here and stuff. Yeah. There is that dark, there is that dark humour to it, and especially like the fact that you've got the young person. Actually, teaching the while she's growing up as part in front of your very eyes, she's also teaching adults, i.e., the the Jonathan character. You know what to be alive is.
2: Yeah, I'm interested in subtext. I love it when somebody says yeah, no, I'm fine, and you're thinking, such a liar, it's really about your body language, just the way you're training those cushions, shows me you're not fine, and I love that kind of thing, which is a bit of drama, mixed with, you know, and you can, if you throw a few cheeky lines in around there, I'm happy, that's, my, that's When I'm at my happiest, if people are in the middle of a dramatic situation, and someone's either behaving inappropriately, hiding something, lying, or, you know, like... So I suppose yes, comedy drama, but definitely not genre. No, the biggest, the most genreous I would get would be rom-com.
1: Okay, so so when, when you were when you were doing this this free form that got you to the albatross screenplay, yeah. there obviously would have been storytelling challenges. And let's let's talk about the screenplay you written as opposed to the yeah. the film that got made, because obviously, like you've already explained, there were things that that through what the director wanted changed. So yeah. when it was your screenplay to yeah. to manipulate as an, as you wanted. What, what were the storytelling challenges for you, and what did you do to get, what what was in the screenplay that got you, that, that you worked out, that got you round it? Well, um,
2: one of the things I wanted to do with this specifically was, when I had been thinking about writing, which I had forever, I went to journalism college before university, because I wanted to be a journalist, so I'd always liked writing, mm. and I just didn't know about these sorts of jobs, because I was from a small town. I was mm. from working, so, you know, like you don't have screenwriters hanging around just coming to school to talk to you and stuff like that. So I'd sort of looked at writing in any context. And then when I'd started to work in film, I'd become very interested in whether you'd followed one character in that sort of sliding doors way, mm. or, or you did like magical realism, like in Big or something, yeah. or whether you could just write it with a set of characters and it could all just be. And that's very much what I wanted to do, is to keep it in in a way that was relatable you know, that it felt very English. I, that's what I wanted to do, is write something very English. Mm. But my thing was saying, if it ever got made, this is like way before this had happened. I said, I just don't want it to look brown. I find a lot of these these sort of dra- comedy dramas from, you know, always have a brown palette about them. You know, I <laughs> It would have looked rich and lush and, you know, like bright blue sea and bright blue sky and things like that. But the idea was to use multiple characters to tell that story because I wanted to exploit how hard or easy it was to save a scene if you can just have another character walking in. Mm. And actually... It's a brilliant, brilliant challenge because you've always got somewhere to go. Because if you've got one character and they are literally in every scene and leading you by the hand through the action, you very, very, very much have to keep it with them. And you are if they overhear anything it has to be tacky, like, Oh, I just I heard that behind the door. Whereas you see so you can't have anybody anything being learned by your protagonist. You know, unless it's first-hand, because nobody else is having conversations without them being in the scene. So what was lovely with this is I'd just go, oh, I've run out of storyline here. I'm just going to skip to Jonathan. He's, like, sitting at his desk, i was was to oh, no, let's go to Joa. She's now frustrated because she used to be an actress. You know, you just skip scenes, and suddenly you've, you've pulled yourself back on track, and I thought it was a mesmerising revelation is to find all that, how, how helpful that could be.
1: So it's interesting you refer to it as helpful, because when, in, in sort of... When I've, when I've tried to look at this sort of academically, you know, in terms of how you write drama and, and stuff. Yeah. They talk they talk a lot about triangles, you know, the idea of sort of three characters having six relationships is that you've got to work out as a writer between Really? The, the, yeah, if you think what, the three what? people, you've got you've got A, B, C, A and B, A and C Well
2: I'm it in pairs. I in vi- pairs. So but but we...
1: what I was going to say though was is that then when you go to four characters stories within a, within a drama yeah. that doubles to 12 relationships to manage. I mean it doesn't it doesn't mean you have to explicitly have them all because obviously like in your tale there's no relationship between the dad and the grandparent is there? you know there's there's no, no direct relationship there but they exist okay. within that drama don't they but but it's yeah, just that yeah. it's the challenge of the writer and it's like you say there's 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 the there's the natural instinct when you read a story certainly single protagonist one where you go why is the why is the protagonist not here whereas yours yeah. doesn't well well i think i mean it is Amelia's story isn't it although yeah, if, yeah. if, so if so we've if, got
2: a central character and the person that we follow but if she's not in the scene the scene still exists So that's what was really refreshing
1: yeah because because i like I, I must admit there's like there's that look that nice trick where just in terms of when you're watching it where for for a while in the beginning while it's fine while you're trying to work out what's going on it could, yeah. be Beth, it could be it could be best story in the opening 15 minutes. I know I know you start on the media on the beach and stuff, but given yeah, yeah, yeah. given Go the action it. that happens in the BB. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. In the opening 15 minutes. While, yeah. obviously you get the opening scene is Amelia on the beach, and we get the sense yeah. of who this troubled girl is. Then we go kind of hardcore on Beth for a while, don't we, and get the get the situation before we reintroduce Amelia. So for a, for a second or two, it kind of feels like it could have been Beth's story. I mean, did that did that ever feel like that when you were writing it, or was it always you always kept returning to Amelia?
2: My draft was very, more, much more Amelia-heavy, I think, and the director wanted it to be a story of two girls. And oh, okay. He, The original poster had both of them on it.
1: That's and interesting.
2: I think then as the edit started to occur, it, it, it did pull back to Amelia's It was always supposed to be Amelia's story, mm. and Beth was supposed to be a reflection of what she could have been, mm. because she was as bright. They probably were as bright as each other, but one of them had different opportunities and different influences, and her, you know it was whether whether you can still fulfil your ambitions regardless of you know what's going on around you. And so she was supposed to be sort of reflective, and in fact, Joa was supposed to be. She had she was thwarted. She'd wanted to be an actress, but she'd taken a different path. She'd made a decision that had changed the course of her life. And Jonathan, effectively, is now me who wrote something years ago, and nothing ever happened since. Mm. <laughs> like, so. So you know they were all supposed to sort of be reflections of the same story. I think.
1: No, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I felt I felt confident it was a mean. Is at the end. I just think that in the opening twenty, you kind of there is there is a sort of there is a play around with who's who's the most important I think character.
2: I not like that either. I think they edited it like that. Okay pretty sure the whole of the beginning was Amelia on the beach and that beach party was not like that it was in the dead of night and she was like it, she'd stayed up really late just sitting mm. you know like uh but then she got picked up by the police in the darkness I think and they took her home and so there was quite a lot of other stuff going on and then you didn't meet Beth or she got into the thing but they edited those opening credits with all of them which is absolutely fine it still makes sense in fact it still tells the same story but that wasn't my decision
1: Okay, so so what? Just out of interest, then, given all your experience in development, working with writers. Now, I know you said you sort of took it on as a way of trying to understand how you'd take criticism. But what what did you what did you understand about writing a screenplay from a development point of view that you were able to overlay into your own process of writing the screenplay?
2: Well, for one, and I think this is a definite advantage, I worked at BBC Films for four years. I've worked for Film 4. I've worked at Big Talk. i worked at an independent for three years. I've been a script reader for, like, multiple film council and places like that. So mm. it isn't a script that was around for at least 15 years that hadn't probably passed under my nose at some point. So that's thousands. And therefore, it structure... This is why it really annoyed me with all those magazines saying I didn't know structure. Structure was very much second nature. It's a heartbeat. It's not, it doesn't feel like I had to think about the loops that very much, and you get that. I think people that are new to writing have to train themselves into that, Mm. the beat, the pattern of up, 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 smooth, down. It's almost like a piece of music to me. And when I'm watching it very, 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 much so when I go to the cinema, you, you know that you're shifting your seat because the first act's too long, or, you know, they haven't hit the right points, and I hate the fact that it's as technical as that, because it's just storytelling, but if you look, at, right back to the writer's journey, and I don't know if you've read the Christopher Vogler book, but it goes to those, you know, those original epic, from, you know, Greek mythology, yeah, yeah. the structure was the same. The, the wants the character wants the character puts it off, he tries, he doesn't achieve, he does, makes a decision all of that stuff and, uh, and that very much was an asset because I just read so many. on the downside I have to say, and particularly when I was still working and not and kept trying to write as well at weekends and things yeah it does feel like you're there's nothing left for you. <laughs> Everybody is doing everything you want to and you do learn about all these different scripts and you find out about other people's opportunities and it's heartbreaking because you you want it to be you. But also you go, I could have written that like, and you haven't okay. and now you can't even touch that territory. So ignorance is bliss at the end of that thought.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. So you, you, were, you were more aware than most people as to what was in the marketplace yeah. full stop. So your imagination was kind of, would go somewhere you go, no, three people are doing that one already. Uh, Absolutely. Just I right now,
2: When I was a script reader, uh, it was really interesting how the world worked. Like, one month, same month, and this was at BBC <coughs> Films, so they come to you for, like, the last bit of financing often. Yeah. Three Al Gwynn projects in one month from completely different production companies, different attachments, different everything. Mm. But... Why is everyone, none of them have ever been made, which is really sad, but why is that in the ether? But that happens so much, and I think that's how you get two Capotes and two Alexander films and, you know, things like that. But that's because they don't know about each other for for far too long, and it's probably nice. You just get on and do your best work, and it's not influenced by the fact that you feel very insecure because, A, another writer writes similar to you and has been commissioned to, you know, do a rom-com about dot, 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 Mm. You go. Oh, that crosses my. They're not good, there's not enough money in the UK for that to, you know, allow me to do it too.
1: Yeah, no. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not really appreciated that because obviously I wasn't, I wasn't in a position where you were sort of inside looking out into seeing what the marketplace was. But I read, I read a book called literally called Screenplays by David S. Cohen. who used to write. I think he used to do the, the piece for Variety or Hollywood Reporter where he just look at the history of a screenplay for movies. And yeah. in it, he talks about all those, like, Troy and Gladiator and how there yeah. hadn't been epic history history pieces and then suddenly there was a glut of them. And he's like, there's no, yeah. there's no real understanding of logic as to why, but they did.
2: No, I know. I wanted to... Um, I read this great book about the, about the Fitzgeralds and I really related to Zelda Fitzgerald, who died in a mental asylum in a fire. Um, and, but I, Which bit were you relating of- to, <laughs> little bit um I phoned my American agent and he said oh I'll look into it for you and he came back and he said there's one on the blacklist there's one that's out to cart i like everyone was thinking about Zelda at the same time as me so I missed that boat but you know it, it's a it's better to just get on just put your pen to your paper and see how you tell the story yours might be the best one
1: so talking of which then how would you describe yourself as a writer and, and ask that in terms of you know, are you burning midnight oil? Are you getting up early in the morning? Do you have methods to your madness? Are you chaos?
2: Yeah, I'm chaos, obviously. I um, very, very, very much have learned a lot because I worked in offices ever since ever mm. and so being my own master of my own destiny is is much harder than you'd imagine but also the most interesting thing about the entire the entire thing and i've worked for some of the biggest companies film companies in the uk mm. is literally how much time is wasted not deliberately you're not wasting it as in internet shopping but going to have a meeting about a meeting about meeting so and so so that's half the day gone having meetings about meetings Then having a staff meeting, and then you, uh, you know, then you sort of catch up on your paperwork a bit. And when you're actually at home, yeah, doing solid, focused work is so intense compared to oh, someone's having a phone call and you butt in and go, oh no, I know about that. (laughs) When you're at home, there's nobody doing that. It's just you and your work. And I found, I think that the absolute tip top I can physically write is four hours. The rest of the time. I will go for a walk, and most of my writing gets done on that walk because it r- r- sorts everything out. The fresh air somehow just goes, oh, God, that character was in the wrong scene in the first place. But if that walk is more important than the four hours often, because then the next stage writing will be like, ah, oh, that was the problem. But it really, really, I find it very difficult. And so everything is thinking time, and everything is going towards my end product, but it might not be sat at my desk, in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite laxed because um, it either happens or it doesn't. And you can absolutely kill yourself trying to trying to jump over a hurdle that that day does not want you to jump over it.
1: No, no, I, 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 I totally understand. I, I've stared at a wall. I've stared at a laptop. I've got nowhere. And seven hours have passed.
2: And how upsetting is it? You yeah. feel so used to it. Then you start, like, actually beating yourself up about it. Oh, and you, you end...
1: look. You look at. You look at welding courses and all kinds.
2: <laughs> yeah, of course. In the end, you just feel so utterly wretched, and it's quite a lonely profession anyway. You don't need to be doing that, I find. Just do. And I think reading, sometimes just going and taking a book onto the sofa, and I lie down, the cat sits on me, and I read a book. And actually the book, just the way the book's written, might inspire me mm. for the next day. I just, I, you know, I, I've heard of these people that punish themselves so badly over things like that because you feel like you're wasting the opportunity, but if it, it's more of a waste if it never happens because you put yourself off writing forever.
1: No, no, totally, yes. totally, and I think. But what you what you talked, what you mentioned there about the idea of the walk and sorting things out is that it is the the act of writing isn't in, in itself a piece of piss because it's because yes. it's well, just because it you're like typing. Like I've been, but
2: like Tinkerbell's taken control of me. It literally, it's like I'm not doing it. Yeah, but it's, the, it's the seven weeks before. where yeah. I feel like I. have Wasting my life, I'm standing on the window ledge. going, I can't
1: do it anymore. I mean, I mean, Stephen King talks in his book on writing. He talks about the the the, the strength of going for a walk as the part of the writing process. I mean, yeah, he
2: fortunately got hit by a car, so he, I'm not taking his advice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, don't walk, don't walk on on open country roads. But but there, but in theory, I mean, I mean, and and he's not alone. I mean, I've interviewed other people that talked about. They go walking until they solve the problem, which I find I find that quite scary. The idea that you you keep walking, I feel like the story about Johnny Cash going into a cave with a candle until it burns out, and you're like going right, I've got to go back in the dark now.
2: <laughs> yeah, the thing is, I'm a bit lazy to walk that far. Um, but do you know Bill Gallagher? I think he wrote Gladiator and Les is, didn't he? Have well, I got his surname right? And I listened to a podcast... Bill Nicholson,
1: Bill Nicholson wrote. wrote That's right,
2: Bill Nicholson. And he said, I only write in the afternoons or something. He goes, "Or I only write in the mornings. I take the afternoons off. He said, I have to live or I've got nothing to write about. And I thought, good man, I'm with you.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's that's the... It's good to hear those examples, because I think as we we were joking before the podcast, is that there are a lot of people who feel that this is... We're doing Dutch Calvinism to be a writer. (laughs) And that writing is hell. And then when we die, we go to heaven and everyone says, oh, you didn't have to bother doing that.
2: Yeah. Well, that tortured artist thing is very, very, very popular at the moment, I've noticed amongst my crowd. But ultimately, the the, the more tortured you are, the more time you seem to spend on bloody Twitter. And that for me (laughs) is not being a tortured artist. I'd rather be outside walking to the coffee shop than than killing, like going on Twitter and believing that that's work because I'm still sat at my computer.
1: No, I mean, to be honest with you, this is exactly why I started doing the podcast, in many senses. I thought, if I guarantee myself contact with the real world...
2: Yeah, that's it.
1: I I create disruption that I have to deal with, as opposed to staring at a wall and beating myself up. I think that's a big... I think it's a big thing for writing, but also I still think it's finding that way to tap into the subconscious. And if it is a warp, that's brilliant. But yeah, I, I, I know listen a Craig Mazan on on one of the other po- yeah. film podcasts. He, t- he he says he does all, he solves all his problems in the shower. You know, it's like the idea of oh, when you're you not gosh. thinking. <laughs> Sorry. I,
2: think I said something gross. I wish I hadn't. Sorry. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm the big. I'm the. I'm a big advocate of um, of just the clearing the mind. It doesn't matter how you do it. Just do it.
1: So what, what what, can you tell us that you're working on at the moment, if anything at all?
2: Yeah, I am. I've, I'm, I've recently turned to television. Not okay. watching it, although I have turned to doing that as well. <laughs> Uh, but I've only ever written films. I've written two sitcoms actually. That was the lie. one for Channel Four and one for Sky. Neither of which got made. One of which was great. One of which wasn't. Okay. Um, but the I've, just, I've decided to delve into drama, but comedy drama. Now, if I say, Cold Feet, everyone will groan and say, "Yeah, everyone says that." But that sort of I like relationships. I like sort of you know a group of friends. I like funny mixed with dramatic, mixed with life and death. Yeah. Uh, but as you say, it's a it's a different kettle of fish. And I wasn't a drama developer either so it doesn't have a natural cadence for me it isn't like music and what I've learned is even at pitch stage if say it was 6x you have to know what's happening in episode six to write episode one so that treatment phase is a lot longer than anything else really because they will turn it down if you haven't sorted it out and that's just a fact they just will say we you know we've, we've seen that before and in fact the first thing I pitched originally Uh, to a company who are interested they've optioned something else of mine Uh, I said I've got this brilliant idea and I sent it to them and he goes it is brilliant it was on on Friday and was written by Peter Morgan or somebody amazing and I went there's a lesson for me look at the Radio Times (laughs) <laughs> radio times doesn't exist anymore i'm sure but so i'm trying drama comedy drama and set within a sort of world that i understand and know because write yourself i'm still also given it's my first sort of tv i'm not veering off into procedural or legal or um police or you know any of those sort of things because that's not where i come from and would involve so much research we don't even know if i'm going to be any good at it yet
1: yeah, no. A friend, a friend of mine was visiting me, and sadly, had like a well, not sadly because he's he's perfectly fine now, he's perfectly healthy and happy. A guy, a writer called Peter Spencer from Manchester, and he had a heart tremor, and we ended up, we ended up in Whips Cross, and the, the guy, the doctor who's dealing with him says, um, "So what do you do?" You know, as part of the uh, general conversation, and then he says, "Oh, I've I've been writing. I've optioned something to Red Planet." Oh. You're thinking, the guy in A and E. Has yes. got an option to Red Planet, and here we are. <laughs> exactly. <I love.
2: laughs>
1: about about the diary. It's something like the Diary of an Air Ambulance Man or something, which obviously he knows quite well because that's what he does. As just um, picking up your point about the the idea of process and, and procedural. a writer. <laughs> and you're kind of like, oh, I've got to give up. Either that, I'll become a qualified doctor, so I've got something <laughs> to write about.
2: Yeah, you should have said I'm an anesthetist, but only at weekends.
1: <laughs> but how did you? How did you find? I mean, I've I've tried. To, to to look at TV as a, as a way of writing. But it is it is seismically a shift away from how your brain works to try and yeah. write a film screenplay. How have you found that shift?
2: I don't want to be miserable because we're on the Blitfrix, Fricks podcast. But since I left development, the state of the British film industry has deteriorated so immeasurably. It's one of the most depressing things I've ever seen. And every contact I have, I've just dropped a puppet. I've just dropped a Hansel and Gretel puppet, sorry. Um, every single film company that I dealt with or had dealings with or had projects in with is, has now turned to TV themselves because they're just not making the money in film. And it was sheer depression about that situation that's turned me to TV. Because so I still want to work with these good people and these people that I know do good work. Yeah. But if they don't believe we can get financing raised for the kind of thing that I'm writing or want to write at the moment, then I will do... The next thing, which is TV, so I don't care. I'm going to have to learn it, uh, I just hope that if I've got good people on my side, that they're willing to teach you if your story is good enough or your storytelling is good enough. Please don't leave me out in the dark, is what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, give it with, with that in mind. Then is is there a is there any kind of silver lining at all? Is there any if if there's certain elements of the industry where the funding is not going to be of that kind of work. Where is the sh- where is the bright lights in terms of? And I'm not saying because we don't make that many films, so I'm not saying that no. there's, a, there's there's some sort of hidden cottage industry churning out stuff. But <laughs> but what what kind of British films are the market able to fund? What what what, what in your you know in your industry view? What do you think?
2: Uh, the thing about Ben Wheatley is I can't admire him enough for. He just takes a camera out every weekend and shoots something. He writes his own stuff. He did down terrace with a bit of money he'd saved up from elsewhere, and he shot it, and it won at Raindance or somewhere, Biffer or, and yeah. That's how I found him to attach him to sightseers. And in the interim, so whilst we were trying to raise money for sightseers, he did Kill List, again, I think, off his own bat, and then went to Warp, and they financed him, and it was picked up by Studio Canal for distribution. Suddenly he's got a career. Mm. He was doing commercials and I think he did ideal the Johnny Vegas. Show. He did a lot
1: he did a lot of TV, didn't he? That was Yeah.
2: And he didn't he didn't complain. He just got the hell on with what he wanted to do because he wanted to make films and now he's making whatever he wants because he is just lauded. I can't say that strongly enough, especially to like O'Toole type people. It's just get out and do it. Mm. And with us writers, is just continue. It will be swings and roundabouts. It's not going anywhere. It's just there's been a few failures. I mean, I'll tell you what's obviously, things like Mrs. Brown's Boys and the In Between Us is where people are getting films made. And that's, that's the problem. There's just not sure of money in those kind of things. So it will happen, though. It's just, it just, that's, I think that's what happens in life, isn't it? It swings up and it swings down.
1: Yeah because I, I guess I guess what you've just said there is is an echo of what um the Duplass brothers were saying at um South Pasadena I think it. it must be South by Southwest that was recent wasn't it yeah they were saying that it is just get it you know get it done don't wait for everything to be in place for you to do it
2: yeah and there's a lot of people that are, like, are very precious about it and in the end you have to go if you want it done just cut the budget get a camera, or or agree to work for free, and I hate it, and I write for this, um, I write articles for this website called Industrial Scripts, and just the one that I just live by the most is the one about how much that I've had to do for free recently when I can't go into Starbucks and pay them in hugs, you know, like get my lunch paid for, because I'm not being paid, but that doesn't mean I I don't need money, Mm -hmm. but I am also strongly of the opinion what goes around comes around, and so therefore... I believe if I put in, it will come back. Because if if I don't believe it,
1: <laughs> I'm totally with you, Tamsin. I'm 160 podcasts in, so I'm I'm due some I'm due some good karma somewhere.
2: Yeah, you really are. Am I number 160? I'm
1: I'm. It's a figure I keep sticking to. It might be a bit further on than that now, but I, I'm around there.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. You're making your own fortune. I hope so. Good on you.
1: Cheers. Cheers. I'll I'll tell Nationwide build Society. Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> just pay them in goodwill like everyone
1: pays you no so I'll say to them I'll say say I'm look I'm due goodwill it's okay it'll come and they'll go alright we'll, we won't put interest on it this month yeah,
2: yeah but to put it into a full metaphor if you build it they will come
1: if you don't already subscribe to Britflix just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly thank you in where, where can people get hold of, or how can people get hold of, uh, Albatross?
2: Well, interestingly, I used to go into HMV and uh, any of those sort of little video stores that do still exist and look for it every single week, and it's never been in there. When in last week, it was there. I bought it, £5. But it has been on the BBC twice, so it's probably somehow on, it was on BBC Two recently. So maybe it's on uh, iPlayer or somewhere. I don't really know. I should know things like this, shouldn't I?
1: I guess so. I mean, you, <laughs> you'd like yeah. to think you might be an authority on a film you've written. <laughs> uh, I got it on DVD. Yeah. Um, so it is available, and I got that through Amazon, so it is easily available that way. And I and I did, ironically did buy it in the week it was on BBC Two, which you told me. And I, and wait, then the I t- t- uh,
2: downloaded from BBC Two on, on both my tellys here. Uh, so if anyone just wants to come round, who you knows? Talk you through. I do. I do the writer's commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how boring I'd be. I wasn't even there for the filming, so I don't actually know any of the facts.
1: Right, that it Well, look, I, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground here. I don't know if there's anything particularly you wanted to. Pick up on that you that you haven't or that you had in mind that you would set, talk about that we've not mentioned. Yeah,
2: my only thing I would say is just keep writing because I can't actually, when people ask me for advice ever, there's nothing else to say but keep writing <clears throat> because nothing, until you've got something in your hand that you can produce or show someone or give or finance, there is nothing. There's no point just being pie in the sky talking about it. There's nothing more boring. It's like someone talking about their dreams if they're not actually doing it. (laughs) There was a chocolate teapot. You're going, is this an actual movie? If you've written it down, no, then shush. (laughs) So just get on. That's all I can say.
1: Seems fair enough to me. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much. Speak to you soon.
1: Indeed. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.